From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Being told you need a transplant can send you and your loved ones on a challenging and uncertain journey, one with physical, financial, and emotional hardships. The Gift of Life Transplant House at Mayo Clinic aims to ease some of those burdens. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to provide a home that helps and heals for transplant patients. On today's program, we'll learn more from the director of the Gift of Life Transplant House and a current resident. Also on the program, Dr. Tom Shives will join me as co-host and we'll hear about the latest treatments for erectile dysfunction. And a few stories from Flying the Friendly Skies. All of that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 1973, Ed Pompain received the gift of life, a kidney from his mother, no less, Helen. Ed's personal experience at Mayo Clinic led him to believe that the health and well-being of transplant patients and their families would be better if they could live in a home-like setting during their treatment. The goal was to provide Mayo Clinic transplant patients with high-quality, affordable accommodations that could offer the support that transplant patients need. In 1984, that goal became a reality when the Gift of Life Transplant House opened. That's right. Gift of Life now has two houses in Rochester on either side of 2nd Street. They provide services for solid organ, bone marrow, and stem cell transplant patients and their families. Patients of all ages come to Mayo Clinic from all over the world, and Gift of Life offers transplant patients a home away from home. And here to discuss is the director of the Gift of Life Transplant House, Mary Wilder, and joining her is the husband of a stem cell recipient, John Royce, to share the experience of life at the transplant house. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you so much for having us. We're just delighted to be here. It's good to be here. It'll be a fun show. Tell us, first of all, Mary, how long have you been the director at the Gift of Life Transplant House? I have not even been there a year yet. I started on May 22nd. I actually was a kidney donor for my father 40 years ago, and I was so connected instantly to the mission and what I found at Gift of Life Transplant House, and that's what brought me here. So, so Mary, obviously your passion is uh, infectious. When you walked in the door, tell us about the culture and what you noticed about the Gift of Life Transplant House. The very first thing I noticed was the warmth that was there, Uh, a very, very supportive feeling. It was just like walking into your own home and feeling that um, the the uh, patients and the caregivers that were there were very welcoming with one another. You know, I expected to find a situation where I would be encouraging individuals, where I would be the one saying, oh, it's going to be okay. We'll be praying for it, whatever it was. Instead, it's exactly the opposite. And that was from the very first day I walked in that I was being encouraged. I was being inspired by the courage I saw of guests who were dealing with very, very difficult situations. And yet living in a home-like environment where they could discuss all this with others. How many patients or families do you usually see each year? Well, with last year in 2017, we were able to accommodate 4,625 guests and caregivers. The year before that, it was right around 4,000. So we are continuing to grow and continuing to accommodate more and more. And, of course, the need is getting greater and greater. Uh, as Mayo is expanding as well. How often does a patient usually stay? You know, the average stay is completely dependent on the type of transplant.
want than an individual has. So our kidney recipients will be with us for two to three weeks, uh, whereas our stem cell patients can be with us for their whole 100-day journey uh, through getting that stem cell transplant. And so. John, that's that's where you kind of come in because it your is. wife, yeah, your wife Susan is in that position. Tell us her story. Yes, well, we're 19, uh, in 2011, actually, she had a stem cell transplant in September, and we went to a doctor. She said, where are you going to stay? We said, well, we'll stay at a hotel someplace. So have you ever thought about the gift of life? I said, what is that? She said, what's well, a place where transplant people can stay? I said, oh, well, that'd be interesting. So we went over and took a tour, which you must be required to take one. And we looked, saw the people, just like Mary said, such a friendly, warm atmosphere. And we were in the older house on the north side first. Mm -hmm. We stayed there, and the people were just great. And so that's what began our stay in the Gift of Life house. And what was her diagnosis? She has multiple myeloma. And uh, so she was here. We were for uh, six weeks in September 2011. And then uh, she was on continuous chemo from that. It didn't really work that. But so she just completed uh, the CAR T-cell. Uh, transplant, which was five weeks ago. And so we're back here again, and it's the first place we want to stay as a Gift of Life house. So, John, obviously going through a diagnosis like this can be uh, emotional and, and trying. Mm -hmm. when, when you came to the Gift of Life uh, house, tell us how that changed things for you, how it made it easier to adjust to the treatment that Susan received. You know, it's kind of like when I got drafted in the Army in the infantry during Vietnam. None of us wanted to be there, but we're all there, and so we're going to make the best of it. And that's kind of what that was, because everybody there had some issue that they were dealing with, some major issue. And so you just stick together. People are saying, hey, we pray for you, like Mary said, we'll help you. What can we do to help you? And we're all in the same boat. So we find out their diagnosis and what they're doing. We encourage one another, which is so good. What is CAR-T-cell? Is that Car what you said? What is that? CAR-T-cell, it's a clinical trial that they're doing. They've, they've got FDA approval for uh, myeloma, I'm sorry, some forms of lymphoma and some forms of leukemia, but they do not for multiple myeloma. So they take your T-cells out and they send them to some lab for four to five weeks. They modify them. Then they put them back in you and you get real sick, but it attacks the cancer. And so we got results yesterday and it's doing a fantastic job. So we're praying that God will heal her through this CAR T-cell. That's amazing. It is. And when you first came in, I said, mm -hmm. oh, you guys are on the south side of the road because the bone marrow and the stem cell folks, that's where you all stay. What's the difference between the two houses? You know, there is absolutely no difference between the two houses at all. Each house accommodates any type of uh, transplant that's occurred. The houses are all set up to run exactly the same way. Uh, we provide, so just let me give you an overview, mm -hmm. a little bit of what the house is like. Each guest has their own bedroom. Uh, the bedrooms have uh, furniture in them, including beds, a recliner, a chest of drawers, their own bathroom that they can um, make use of. Uh, we provide linens for them. However, once you've become a guest at the house now, you're responsible for cleaning your own room, taking care of your own garbage. We also have uh, communal dining areas and communal kitchens. So we don't allow any food in the rooms, and we don't allow any um, televisions in the rooms. We have TV sitting areas where guests, because we want the guests to come out and mingle with one another and provide that support that Ed Pompein had the vision for so many years ago. He realized that people needed to be able to come to a home-like atmosphere rather than going to a hotel, sitting in that small little room doing mm -hmm. nothing but watching TV. Here we can be out, we can eat together, we can mingle with one another and talk about what's happening. So the houses are set up in a way that would allow for that commingling of one another. So we have an exercise room, we have extensive libraries, um, we have um, uh, different TV rooms mm -hmm. set throughout the house, sunrooms, craft rooms, and those types of things. So.
So, Mary, in this multicultural environment we live in, how do you cater for different cultures that come to the uh, transplant house? You know, that's a very interesting question. Um, there really isn't any catering that goes on. What happens is, is when you're faced with that type of an illness, that's the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is treated exactly the same. So we have Muslims that come to the house. We have uh, people from Israel, Israelis that come to the house. We have uh, people from East India that come to the house. What I've noticed is that there is no... Uh, we all sit down and eat meals together. We all sit and visit about what we're going through. Sometimes there's a language barrier. We have a lovely family that came. Um, uh, they're both from, uh, they're not from Mexico, but they're Mexican, but very, very difficult language uh, barrier. And it, we spent quite a bit of time with an, an app that you have on the iPhone for <laughs> translating and being able to speak together. But they walk in the house now and they greet everyone and hugs and, you know, that wonderful, wonderful culture that they have of hospitality. So it is truly the great equalizer and being able to be at the house. We're wow. all the same. We're all in home and home together. That's fantastic. So John mentioned um, going on a tour before um, enrolling into the house. Can you tell us the sort of process by which one, as you mentioned, they're not called patients, they're called guests. That's right. How the guests uh, actually enter into the, uh, the house. Absolutely. Well, as you realize, both of you, because of the fact that once you've had a transplant, having a sanitary environment that's free, as much as possible free of germs as you can have is critically important. And so the tour allows us to explain to our guests how that is possible. We provide different types of cleaning products and tell them what types of cleaning products they should be using. We show them the communal dining areas and explain to them how cleaning is done. We have sanitizers for all the tables, for all of the kitchen areas. We explain how dishes are washed and cleaned. But that tour is critical not just to understand how we function and operate. It's also critical because you have to walk through the front doors of the house Mm. to understand that this is a place Mm. I can call home and I can be comfortable and I can focus and concentrate on my recovery instead of having to concentrate on how am I going to eat, how am I going to take care of myself. Because you can be there for a long time. John, how long have you and Susan been at Gift of Life? It was five weeks on Sunday we were here this time, and the previous time it was for six weeks. And how much longer are you going to be here? I think we're probably leaving this afternoon. Oh, my goodness. Depending on what the doctors say, but we have to leave this afternoon. But one thing about the Gift of Life House, and I've said this many times, is that you could provide us a free hotel room, the best hotel in Rochester, Mm -hmm. the free food, whatever it is, we would turn that down. We'd stay at Gift of Life House because of the cleanliness and the comradeship and the quietness. It's just a great place to be. Yeah, when you are someplace, you have to be someplace for five weeks or six weeks. It's uh, It makes a big difference if it's a place that feels a little, just a little bit like home. It does. It is. And we do have guests that are just celebrating their year anniversary. They've been with us for an entire year. Wow. So we've had guests stay with us as long as three years. Because so, do they stay with you while they're waiting on the yes, transplant list as well? they can be with us while they're waiting for the transplant. Right. Right. And Mary, is there a, a, an upper limit of how many guests you can accept in the house? There are, unfortunately, and so that's uh, that's part of the discussion here for the future. Um, we have 84 rooms right now between the two houses, 48 at what we call the original house and 36 at what we call the new house. Well, we've been talking about the needs of transplant patients with Director of Gift of Life Transplant House, Mary Wilder, and current house resident and husband of a transplant recipient, John Royce, and his wife Susan. We're going to take a quick break. 
When we come back, we'll hear more about Susan's journey and experience here at Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back to talk about transplant with Mary Wilder, director of the Gift of Life Transplant House, and John Royce, husband of his beloved wife, Susan, who has stayed at the house during a stem cell transplant and treatments. I just wonder, John, how many years ago, first of all, was she diagnosed? She was diagnosed on May 13th of 2011. And how and did she know that she was sick? It was her internal medicine doctor in Mankato, Minnesota, who diagnosed it. And then we were so fortunate, we got to mail right away with Dr. Lacey. And I cannot say enough good about how, how professional and how great the staff is here at Mayo Clinic. That's interesting. So you're close by, Mankato. For everybody else around the country yeah. who's listening, Mankato's not that far away. An hour and a half to the west. Yeah, but it still is... As a person who went through cancer treatment, I can completely understand why you would much rather stay. Maybe you'd rather move into the Gift of Life Transplant House if you could. It'd be great. It's cheap there and and there's good people. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that a little bit because as we were getting started, uh, one of the first things that Dr. Kakar learned is that it is not Mayo Clinic's Gift of Life Transplant House. No, um, we do not. We're a completely independent nonprofit. We do charge $30 a night for guests and their caregivers. So that's $30 for two people in the room. Obviously, that does not sustain Mm -hmm. the operational Mm -hmm. needs of the house. And as a result, we rely heavily on the generosity of benefactors who are so gracious. And we have a wonderful, wonderful um, base of individuals who provide uh, funding for us. We just had an example of a gentleman who uh, was celebrating his first liver transplant. He had never stayed at the house because they live right in Rochester. But he has visited us often and just loves Gift of Life Transplant House. As a result, he decided to hold a birthday party, (sighs) and he asked his guests, rather than bringing presents for Mm -hmm. him, to bring donations for Gift of Life Transplant House. We experience those types of generous, generous donations all the time and, of course, continue to um, want to see those types of uh, generous donations come to us. Now, like uh, Hope Lodge and the Ronald McDonald House, are you also always at capacity and in need of more rooms? Or We are. We generally run about 84% occupancy. Okay. We monitor uh, very, very carefully how what our occupancy rates are. It's very difficult to yeah. send people away to hotels, but we do uh, have a working relationship with five of the hotels in town, and they provide a reduced rate. We're, we're typically not uh, we're typically able to get the guests in with that in a day now mary you talked about benefactor support are there other charitable uh, ways that people can contribute for example fundraising events Yes, we have two or three. Actually, this year we're going to have four different fundraising events that are coming up. And my favorite's coming up, though. That's the 5K. Yes, we have a wonderful group of uh, individuals here on the Transplant Center at Mayo that provide all kinds of fundraising opportunities for us. And one of the most popular is the 5K that will be on June 3rd. Yeah, I, I know patients that um, actually book their rechecks to come back so that they can take part <laughs> in that, which is a pretty great thing. And it not is. only that, but some of the other fundraising events as well. Right, right. And you, no. you're, you're allowed to walk the 5K, is that absolutely. right? Absolutely, <laughs> okay. absolutely. Okay. That's very that. true. Yes. <laughs> Although we, as you're walking and you see that little seven-year-old child darting past you, that's a little bit of an intimidating thing. But, uh, no, you are allowed to walk. Uh, John, 
what is it that made the gift of life easier? I mean, I know that you say you've got that camaraderie. Um, you, you definitely don't feel like you're alone. But what do you tell people about why you come back when you are in the area? I think one is the cleanliness of the place. Being Like Mary said, everything is so clean and it's so quiet. And everybody has an issue that's there, and the caregivers are, are doing their best as well. So you talk with them and meet people from all over the world that are there. We've made some good friends in Texas and some Kansas friends uh, just here this time. And I think we'll probably, a lot of them are lifelong friends mm-hmm. that have been there. The individual who was here for three years when we were here, he's still here. Mm-hmm. So you get to meet a lot of people, and they're really nice people because all are kind of hurting, and you can support one another. But the people that you meet and the way the place is run is really well. The other uh, interesting phenomenon that happens is when you've lived in a place that long, it does become your home. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have caregivers who are helping to prepare meals for other guests and care- and uh, caregivers. And we have um, uh, the individuals who they just take it over and it becomes their house, and which is what we love to see and, and uh, helps them through that really difficult time. We just had an experience of a guest who was waiting for a liver her second liver transplant. She'd been at the house for almost six months, felt herself getting sicker and sicker, said to me, I'm, I'm dying. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to die. It was right before Christmas. She said, I'm going to go home and be with my family. I, I just want to go home and be with them and die. She'd sent her caregiver home. The next morning, the call came. And then, of course, she couldn't find anyone to take her to the hospital. Oh, so my goodness. <laughs> another caregiver was able to take oh. her there. But those are the kinds of stories that we hear all the time. Yeah, I can't imagine, John, that you're the caregiver for Susan, but you also kind of become the caregiver de facto for other people there. You do. You do. There's an individual right now. When we were here six and a half years ago, his wife was waiting for a lung, and he was here for three years. Wow. And he still comes back when so he had some surgery on his ear that recently, but he comes back because he loves this place and he knows so many people. Sure. <laughs> Everybody knows him as well. We've been talking with uh, John Royce, husband of the transplant recipient Susan Royce and director of the Gift of Life Transplant House, Mary Wilder. Thanks, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you so here. much for having us. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Tom Chives joins me as co-host. We'll learn about the latest treatments for erectile dysfunction and some stories from the friendly skies. Do you want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or, Dr. Kakar, you can check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video that are now available on YouTube. Wow, so you mean I need to do my makeup next time? Yes, you do. Okay. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with the Mayo Clinic News Network. Many people think emergency departments tend to overprescribe opioids for people suffering from acute pain. However, a 2017 study published in Annals of Emergency Medicine found that's not true. According to Dr. Molly Jeffrey, lead author of the study and scientific director of the Mayo Clinic Division of Emergency Medicine Research, the research revealed that the opioid prescriptions given in the emergency department are limited. Dr. Jeffrey and her colleagues found opioid prescriptions from the emergency department are written for a shorter duration and smaller dose than those written elsewhere. They also found that patients with acute pain who receive an opioid prescription in the emergency department are less likely to progress to long-term use. Dr. Jeffrey says what we want to avoid is people having a large prescription and having lots of pills left over, because at that point, it becomes a risk for their family members and other people who come to their home. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines caution against exceeding a three-day supply or 50 milligrams of morphine equivalent per day for acute pain. And so they say limiting prescriptions to three to seven days is a good balance. And now let's talk about over-the-counter pain meds, not in the ED setting. Pharmacist Dr. Carrie Krieger says for minor aches and pains, their first go-to medication is typically acetaminophen or Tylenol. Now, acetaminophen works by chemically blocking pain receptor signals in the body. It also has a fever-reducing agent. Mayo Clinic family medicine specialist Dr. Summer Allen says what she recommends for acetaminophen is the lowest dose possible for effect. Now, typically for Tylenol, that's either 325 or 500 milligrams. And in general, don't exceed 3,000 milligrams in 24 hours. That includes any acetaminophen included in other medications you might be taking. For most people, the risk of side effects are minimal. The doctors say the concern that we have for side effects with acetaminophen is when we get too much, then that can cause liver damage or hepatoxicity. As with any medication, make sure to read the label and talk to your healthcare provider or pharmacist if you have questions. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. More than 30 million men in the U.S. are living with erectile dysfunction. Heart disease and diabetes are two of the major risk factors, but unfortunately the biggest risk factor is age, and you can't do much about that. More than half of men who are age 50 experience ED, and the number jumps to 70% at age 70. While ED statistics increase with age, men don't have to live with ED. There are treatment options available. For many men, a physical exam and a medical history are all that's needed for a doctor to diagnose ED and recommend a treatment. Treatments can range from lifestyle changes to oral medications to surgical interventions such as penile implants. Here to discuss treatment for ED is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Toby Kohler. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kohler. We love having you here. Hello again. Thank you for having me back. So much to talk about when it comes to the mail, isn't there? That's right. Very important information. And this is a, this is a tough problem because it, it affects so many individuals. Uh, everybody's living longer, and the, statis- and the statistics show that 70% of men age 70 it's have true. erectile dysfunction. That's true. So, you know, if you're 50 and you're in a the football game, you look to your left or your right, one of those two guys is going to have a problem. Um, so very pervasive, uh, very common, and also an indicator of other underlying problems like heart disease sometimes. So that's why it's really important that we not only uh, look into it and investigate it, but look for the underlying cause to treat it. So what's the relationship there? You said it could ind- be indicative of, for example, heart disease. How are they related? Yeah, so, you know, the penis is essentially uh, the canary in the coal mine, as we like to say. Uh, the blood vessels that feed the penis are about two millimeters in diameter, and the blood vessels in the heart are about four millimeters in diameter. So whenever you have problems with blood flow to areas, uh, the penis will act first because the vessels are smaller. So if the canary stops singing, <laughs> there's a problem impending uh, for the heart, right, because uh, heart attacks are common and can occur. So if you look at statistics, actually, in men age 40 to 50, the strongest predictor of heart disease is erectile dysfunction. No kidding. Why what, is it? the canary stop singing? That's yeah. a, such a great way to put it. And if you don't like the term ED, <laughs> yeah. you've got another way to tell it like it is. Well, here's my question then. I mean, I suppose the answer is obvious, but if so many men experience erectile dysfunction, why is it so hard 
for them to come in and talk to their doctors about it. Well, just uh, one of those things. It's yeah. one of those things. Well, first of all, it's hard to get guys going to the doctor for Here, any problem. Got it. <laughs> you know, but then of course it's a sensitive area. Uh, people are embarrassed. Uh, you know, we often get the hand on the doorknob approach, so they'll come, they'll list a litany of other complaints, and then as we're trying to leave, then they'll bring up this last thing. You have to have confidence. Uh, you have to go in there and say, Doc, I've got a problem with sex. What can we do about it? Uh, well, shouldn't primary care doctors then? I mean, if this is something that's so pervasive, wouldn't they just it just be something that they talk about? They uh, talk about with when it comes to their patients. Yeah, uh, I think that's a very good plan. Uh, and that's, you know, what your primary care doctor should be doing, actually. In age 40s and 50s, both men and women, uh, sexual dysfunction will relate to depression, it will relate to heart disease, will relate to diabetes, all these other things. So the those organs are very sensitive predictors of other problems. So we've got a lot of medical options, which we didn't have before the medications came on the market to uh, help with erectile dysfunction. They're pretty effective? Yeah. Well, you know, before we even... St- talk about medications, we should first talk about lifestyle changes. Hmm. So again, uh, always. It's <laughs> always, it's always lifestyle changes. Yeah. Like if you exercise and eat right, everything gets better. I mean, that's the bottom line. A lot of the stuff we do in medicine is a band-aid to allow you to exercise and eat better, like heart sense, for example. But mm-hmm. uh, if you lose weight, if you quit smoking, if you have a slimmer waistline, your penis will be better. I mean, I think honestly, the cigarette carton should say, you know, this is bad for your penis. And then less people would buy cigarettes. And in, indeed, in Canada, the picture on the side of the carton is like a kind of flaccid cigarette Oh my configuration. Gosh. Yep, they actually do tap into that. Wow. Uh, so smoking, obviously a huge risk factor. Very bad. And as soon as you quit, uh, you have as an effective improvement as if taking pills. All right, uh, but we've got these uh, th- this medical option, and I assume for some people it doesn't work. Um, or stops working over time, and then you've got some other things you can do. Yeah, so lifestyle doesn't work, and then you can try sometimes pills. Uh, pills will work in 50% of men, but they will stop working after about five years, not because you get immune to the pills, but because you get sicker. You know, the blood vessels get more clogged, uh, other medical problems, you know, rear their ugly head. So well, you- now that's interesting. I, did I hear you say that the, the pills, uh, on average, work for just five years? Yes. And then the disease gets bad enough that even that the medicine doesn't help. Correct. Exactly okay. right. And then what do you do? Well, then you've got essentially two options left that, that potentially could work. One is giving yourself injections into the penis, which sounds scary and painful and horrible, but is actually very doable and is uh, uh, works, or you can do a, a surgery. Uh, the surgery is called... Now the injection, what do you inject? <laughs> <laughs> you inject uh, Viagra or, you know these medication, oral medication-like medicines directly into the penis, and they're much more effective because they're in higher quantities. Big needle or? Tiny oh needle. Tiny. Diabetes <laughs> needle. Tiny needle. Uh, most guys rate their pain on a scale of 1 out of 10, 10 being I just got hit by a truck, at 1.5. Uh, okay. And then that doesn't work, or somebody doesn't want to do that, Correct. which would be understandable. Yes. Then we can do surgery. So, uh, you know, you got to think of the penis like a bike tire. So... Uh, a canary order, and a bike tire. There you go, both at the same time. <laughs> so the bike tire analogy is obviously somebody has to pump air into the tire for it to work, right? So that's blood flowing in there in the analogy. And so if the pump is broken, if the line going to the tire is broken, i.e. cholesterol blocking the flow, then you can have problems with erections. The other thing that has to be good in the bike tire analogy is the liner of the bike tire has to be intact 
So there's something called venous leak in the penis that diabetics get where blood flows in, but it can't be trapped in the penis like it's supposed to, so then you can't give your erection. So again, what we do for the surgery is we replace the need for somebody to have to pump air in, and we put an interior liner inside the penis. So that's a device. So that when you want to have sex, essentially the patient manually pumps fluid or normal saline into the device in that same space where blood used to flow, but now you're putting that fluid. Uh, these devices, when you think about it, uh, it's nobody knows you actually have it. So there's nothing outside the body. It's completely concealed. It's locker room proof, as we say. Uh, and it's highly effective and has the highest satisfaction rate of any treatment that we have for problems with erections. Are there risks with this implant? There are risks, like with any other surgery. Uh, but on the whole, they're less than, you know, three to five percent. Uh, there's less than three to five percent chance of something going wrong, but you can get an infection of the device. You can, the device can break. Interestingly, these devices last longer than hips, knees, breast implants, pacemakers. They're the longest lasting medical implants we have. No kidding. And it is lasts it longer than your total hip or your total knee. Now that's, <laughs> that. that's that. That's good. And yeah. is it covered by insurance? It is. It is. So it's covered by Medicare. There's a mandate, government mandate for breast implants to be covered after uh, breast cancer surgery in women. And similarly, in men, after prostate cancer surgery, etc., uh, it's paid for to restore normal function. Treatment options for the common problem of ED with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Toby Kohler. Dr. Kohler, thanks so much for all the great information. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Ah, flying the friendly skies. <laughs> now, some of us are required to travel by air for work on a fairly regular basis, but most of us use airline travel for going someplace fun. Hmm. We can't wait to hop on a plane to a vacation destination. But whether it's business or pleasure, we put a lot of trust in the pilots to get us where we need to go safely. Luckily, the training and testing required of commercial airline pilots is very stringent to help keep us safe as we travel. Joining us on the phone to discuss airline safety, pilot training, and a whole lot more is American Airlines pilot Captain Lori Klein. Lori has been a captain for 30 years. She was the first female pilot in management for U.S. Airways back in the 1990s. She's co-author of two books on women's aviation history entitled Lady Birds. Welcome to the program, Captain Klein. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice meeting you. What got you interested in flying? You know, we had an airplane when I was growing up, so I was literally flying before I was driving. Because it's pretty unusual. What is it, only 5% of, of pilots are actually female. Is that is that changing? I don't see it changing. It has held pretty steady for my most of my career. I think it is just uh, a career avenue that does not appeal to a lot of women, and unless you're exposed to it young like I was, it just doesn't dawn on you, I think, if you're a woman, that that could be a career path that you might want to follow. Your uh, bio says that you're a Czech airman. What does that mean? Yep, Czech airman is the term that they give to the, to the training cadre of pilots who are at the training center. That's my main job. I train our pilots on the Airbus, the A320 aircraft. They would work with me in the simulator, and I'm going to do the evaluation and actually write your ticket and certify that you are ready to go and fly the aircraft. And at that point, then, we start doing the aircraft training. Most, most passengers don't realize that the first time a pilot sees the airplane, they have just come out of the simulator, and now they're with one of us flying along for probably two or three or four trips until they really 
get ready to be kicked out of the nest. So it's a whole process, and a Czech airman is the one that does that with you. It's pretty incredible. The simulators are that good. They are that good, and they're FAA certified that it is as realistic as the airplane, so they go through the ground school, all their flight training, and then when they're ready to actually see their air, the airplane itself, you can do it with passengers on board. What kind of medical testing do you have to have? Well, medical testing requires us every six months to go to the aeromedical examiner. It's a special doctor, and they would administer the appropriate FAA testing uh, that would test your eyes, your analysis, reflexes, hearing, EKGs. It's, it's pretty extensive. Why is it that flying uh, has become so safe? Well, thank goodness, right? Yeah. Oh, um, no kidding. We're lucky that improvements in technology, design, it continues to evolve. There's so many things that we can attribute such a successful year to. I, I can come up with a few mechanical controls, for example. They've all pretty much been uh, replaced by the fly-by-wire technology, the, the Boeing 777, the 787, all the Airbus fleet have what we call that fly-by-wire. It's just a joystick. We look at what used to be the number one cause of airplane accident, which was CFIT, or controlled flight into terrain, and we have global satellite positioning now, which takes a map of the world, and the airplane uses it to constantly check its position and then warn the pilot, warn the aircraft and the systems if they come anywhere close to terrain that we'd need to you know, take evasive maneuvers on. We have TCAS which is collision avoidance technology, and that warns us if we get too close to other airplanes. And not only will it tell us which way to turn, but if you're on some of the most advanced airplanes, it'll actually turn the aircraft for you. That's amazing. <laughs> Inside the cabin, we look at seat fabric. It's not only fire retardant now, but it's self-extinguishing. Imagine that. The harmful toxins that you used to have to worry about have all been engineered away. And even the aircraft walls, are insulated with fire retardant materials. So we have that also in the cabin, which passengers would always want to be alerted to, that floor-level lighting system that's going to guide them and has guided uh, passengers to find exits if it's a darkened situation or maybe a smoke-filled uh, cockpit or a cabin where they need to get out. And um, on the flight deck itself, we have much more intuitive cockpit designs that optimize our workspace because, honestly, I'm really not that much of a pilot anymore. I'm more of a systems manager because <laughs> we program the computer, and then after we take off, we kind of just sit back and manage. So all these things, I think, are just small examples of why, even if there would be an accident, there's a really strong likelihood that that's not going to include any fatalities. What's the biggest danger when people are flying? Let's, let's get up into the sky now. That's right. Despite all the advances, there's still a little danger involved. Oh, absolutely. And I think I would say there are three clear things that pose a danger to passengers flying today. The first one is one we might not think about, but it's drones. Um, we have to count on the government to regulate them. You know, if you, if you get, uh, give your child or teenager a drone to play with or even yourself, you have to maintain that you're going to stay within a five-mile radius of any airport. Then we have these lithium-ion batteries. And, gosh, just about everything we want to take on board uh, from toys, cameras, uh, the laptop computers, the problem is they pose a huge fire risk because they're prone to those thermal runaways that we've seen with those hoverboards and, and the like, but they are very hot. They can get over 1,000 degrees, so they're a harder fire to put out, and they do emit these serious toxins. And for a pilot, my worst fear up in the air is 
is a fire. So we want to try to avoid that. But the thing that we can all be doing right now is where clear air turbulence is concerned. It's a huge danger, and it is the number one cause of injury to passengers and crew members today. Um, it's almost impossible to detect. It's harder to predict. Uh, you least expect it, and even though I look at all the data and think that it might be a time when I can turn the seatbelt sign off, we can't be too sure. So you should always have your seatbelt on if you're in the cabin. And so many times I'm sitting in the back, maybe if I'm deadheading around as a crew member or even just a passenger, and I see folks, see that the seatbelt sign goes off, and they take theirs off. I'll see them dangling uh, in the aisleway there, and I think, oh, you've got to keep them on because... That is the only thing that's going to protect you if we hit it. I thought you were going to say that the the flu would be one of the dangerous things because we're all stuck in a, the same tube together. But is that not so? Well, that's very true. And a lot of people think, oh, if one person sneezes on the airplane, isn't that going to affect the rest of us? Kind of like peeing in a pool, right? Right. If that happens, then we're all subjected. But I think in reality, it's kind of just a myth because uh, the air goes through a very advanced filtering system, and, and whatever is in it is, is circulated well enough that I don't think you have to fear that you're going to catch anything from uh, on board that way. So we don't need to worry too much about the air in the airplane, but what about there are some pretty uh, dirty, gross places on the airplane, aren't there? Oh, there really are. I mean, when you think about it, hundreds of passengers are on the airplane every day. I mean, my aircraft holds 197 passengers, so let's say... I leave the airport at 7, I fly from Charlotte, Richmond, Philadelphia, Boston, land there about 1. That's four flights. All the flights are full today to capacity. So almost 800 passengers I've carried before even the next crew gets on for the rest of the day. So hundreds of people are on the very same airplane touching the same things that you touch, the armrest, the tray table, the seatbelt. And maybe don't think about doing the Sudoku in, the, in the, that airplane magazine in your seat back pocket. Want to go to the restroom? The lavatory door handle, the flush mechanism, the sink, all of those things. Your best bet, carry some of those alcohol wipes to wipe things down that you're going to touch, and maybe some of the hand sanitizer, as long as it's in a bottle that's less than three ounces, can help you kind of mitigate the germs that you're going to encounter what everybody else has, has brought onto the airplane. Passenger jet pilot, Czech Airman, Captain Lori Klein, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.